Welcome back to the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we focus on the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the ego of all of the people at the table. I'm one of your hosts, DM Neil, aka Joke Maniac. And I'm DM Mitch. So today for you, we have another amazing topic, and we're going to be talking about monster cultures. And today we have, surprise, an amazing guest who is with us. But before we get into that, as we do with every episode, we have some five-star reviews to read out. Our first one is from Nidiki, and it is entitled, Yes, Please, Five Stars. I originally stumbled upon this podcast looking for anything to help me build my first one-night campaign. I was only interested in listening to the world-building episodes, but then, hey, this is a world-building episode, but then I fell in love with listening to these guys. I feel this podcast is going to make me a great DM. Listening to this podcast can really get your creative juices flowing. Thank you for everything, DMs Block. Thank you so much, Nidik. <laughs> names. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. We super appreciate it. Yes. And fun fact, creative juices help create a well-balanced breakfast that will make more mm. sense when I read this review, which is from <laughs> Observer138, and they entitled their five-star review, Quick and Useful Tips for GMing. The Dungeon Master's Block is a short, well-balanced breakfast of advice and ideas, harvested fresh each week from the minds of their hosts and forum contributors. It's the unique blend of thoughts that give the dish its signature flavor that, that any DM will love. Maybe I should write my reviews after I eat. Well done, <laughs> Observer138. Thank you for that awesome review, and uh, hopefully we can keep being that well-balanced breakfast for you. Our last one comes from DM Vegas and is entitled Awesome. This podcast is really fun to listen to and full of great ideas. The best D&D podcast there is. That's some high praise, Neil. Oh, uh, thank out. you so much, DM Vegas, for that awesome review. But with all of that out of the way, let's head to the meat. I'm starving. We ain't had nothing but maggoty bread for three stinking days. Why can't we have some meats? The plate meat's back on the menu, boys. Well, for the meat this week, we have a guest joining us. We have Matthias Johnson, writer and producer of Simba Rum. Matthias, welcome to the show. Thanks. Really nice to be here. All the way from Sweden, no less. All the way from Sweden. <laughs> yes, perfect. Awesome. So since we have you all the way from Sweden, we want to know a little bit about Symborum. So you just kind of tell us about what that is. Uh, it's a tabletop uh, fantasy role-playing game that launched in Sweden in 2014. And then uh, we translated it into English. So we did, and it released, I think it hit American retailers in April of, 2016, so about one and a half years ago, and uh, I think today we have seven seven languages in total, with French and Spanish and uh, some other European languages as well. So, uh, and it's my baby, <laughs> <laughs> darling. It is actually what what I make a li living out of, you know, living of role-playing games yeah you hope and dream that it might happen but you never fully believe it yeah and you uh i i first came across it i think on twitter and it's the art drew me in to this like it seems like it's this kind of dark fantasy low fantasy kind of world that it's set in yeah i think that's 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 how most people would describe it and i, I tend to agree it's it's dark in the sense that it's it's darker than the most heroic fantasy. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not dark when you compare it to to say our world, uh, but I guess that's that's not a fair uh, fair thing <laughs> because you can't get much darker than than reality. <laughs> in other words, if if you want me to say a, a few things, trying to characterize what Symbarum is, sure. how it differs from from other how it may be differs from other fantasy role-playing games. 
I think that the, the shortest and most to the point kind of description of, of the concept was actually a fan here in Sweden who said, or was it an English guy? Anyway, he said, it's like Princess Mononoke meets Game of Thrones. Sold. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah mon many people uh, find that, that kind of combination intriguing. I think what he meant was that you have this Game of Thrones kind of dark or serious undertone uh, where you as a writer and as a player and as a GM are trying to take the world you're in seriously. On the one hand, uh, the Mononoke part is more a question of of the theme of the game. It's, it deals a lot with conflicts and, and issues having to do with the, the clash or the meeting between civilization and nature. Hmm. I think I can promise that we will return to that later on this afternoon or morning for you. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so you you said that you are this is your job working on RPGs, uh, tabletop RPGs. So ha is there anything that you've been working on lately that um, you'd like to talk about? Well, as it happens, I'm currently currently writing a, a beast here, the Civil uh -huh. Monster Codex, uh, or editing it, I should say. We are two uh, writers on the game. And this one, I have been in the, the passenger seat for uh, about half of the, the process, and now it has landed on my, in my lap. And I, I get to work with Martin, you mentioned his illustrations, and, and flesh out and, and put the finishing touches on, on all the creatures and monstrosities that will be introduced in the book. That's perfect, and perfect for what we're going to be talking about in a little bit yeah, today as well. <laughs> so let's get into the meat today. Let's start talking about what we've come here to talk about, which is monster cultures. Um, adding monster cultures to your world, really starting to flesh it out to a homebrew world. Um, so I think the first thing that we want to talk about is just that uh, adding of depth to your world that starting to think about and fleshing out the cultures of not just uh, the cities of people uh, in your world, the playable races, but the monsters in your world have cultures as well and how that can make your world feel that much more real. I think maybe one of the first questions that I want to have us kind of discuss is when we talk about this idea of culture and we're looking at uh, monsters having culture, what does it mean? What does culture actually break down to? When we look at what is their culture, what are the aspects of culture that we can start looking at and start breaking down for these monsters? Uh, maybe a quick breakdown of cultures would be that it fits a lot of things into it. Uh, their social organization there's customs and and rituals and traditions, which I think when we talk about monsters can be really interesting uh, getting into all of that. Religion is obviously a part of culture, language, something that I think maybe we don't think about when we talk about monsters that often is their arts and their literature. The form of government is part of culture and even their economic system. Uh, I think a lot of the times when we run games for our players, too often we can fall into the thinking about monsters as just things that you run into the on the road that bring the XP up for an encounter. Whereas these monsters can have deep cultures that involve all of these things. Yeah, absolutely. And they do. Of course they do. I think for me, uh, to, if, if you really boil, boil down the concept to its core, it's culture is much about relations in in all the the forms that you mentioned earlier in your breakdown and being something which has to do with relations it has to do with conflicts and how we manage conflicts so one of the most important aspects i would say of, of a culture is that it is always full of conflict and controversy and complexity and that may be one of the things 
that makes a, a creature or indeed a human uh, realm come alive is when we don't define it in statical homogeneous terms as something moving, something in motion, something which not only has a hierarchy, but which has conflicts in all, in all dimensions and in all uh, aspects of, of social life. So I don't know that maybe that was a little bit too academic. No, 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 that's good. It was perfect. Yeah. We're ready. We're, we're ready to get taken to class. Like, yeah. yeah <laughs> yes. So don't feel, so don't feel bad about sharing it. I like yeah. the, the concept where you bring up that it perpetually needs conflict and kind of to go off of that. I don't want people to hear you say that and assume that it's fighting. No, no. And yeah, no, exactly. The conflict just means that like, well, we should live over here. Well, no, we should live over here. That's a conflict that could define a culture. Like yeah. there's this division of where should we exist as a people? And they ju might just sit in the middle and it's just a constant conflict that they always have. So yeah, conflict is key. I, and I had never even begun to think about it, but like just the smallest things like define a culture on what they agree and disagree about. Yeah. And, and it arises because the things, things you need to live together are limited like food or whatever your particular culture deems important to its members. It is limited and hence it can be, as you said, living space. Should we live here or should we live there? There, it depends on a number of different kinds of, of questions about what kind of, or what the nature looks like in the one place and in the other. It depends on if there are any historical connections to these different locations. It has to do with other cultures invading that space or inhabiting that space and how you relate to them. So, so when we talk about culture, one of the first things I would say that when designing, when trying to give a, a, a class or a race or a family of creatures some cultural depth, you have got to anchor it to the, the culture of the setting or the game world at large. Monsters cultures shouldn't, I think, be regarded as something other than a part of a larger cultural landscape. What that in essence means is that if you don't try to anchor the troll culture or the, I don't know, in, in Symbarum you have the, the, you would probably call the elves monsters because they are hmm. kind of a, a default enemy. The elves culture or the, the, the gnomish culture, if you don't try to define those cultures in relation to, to the setting at large and the predominant human culture, they feel probably a bit off, it, it, like they are some kind of satellites maybe it doesn't fit together in the, the structure that is your game. Yeah, it makes me think of, yeah, like if you build a race or a culture in a vacuum or like a silo, whatever word you want to put in there, it, they're probably going to feel like derivative or like a trope or just very one-dimensional if they don't connect to the other cultures. Like that, you know, one culture should then in turn be defined by the others. And like you said with the elves, like being default evil i'm like super interested in like what about the elves in symborum would make them appear that way yeah okay they they are a fine example of the point i'm desperately trying to to make <laughs> uh, uh, to make clear as i said earlier the the main conflict of or theme of the the game is the the meeting between civilization and nature and the, the elves of Symbarum are actually part of a larger elvish society or, or culture, if you will. And that part is called the Iron Pact. And they are kind of a group of, of guardians who have selected to, to come to this, this region where the game is set and to basically combat the human desire and unstoppable willingness to cultivate nature, meaning that when, when humans enter this, this vast forest of Davokar, which is at the heart of the setting, uh, wanting to, to mine its resources and pillage its, its ancient ruins and so on, uh, you will find the, the elves there 
some of them trying to talk sense into the humans, telling you that, you know, keep doing that and you will awake the darkness that slumbers here since uh, long ago. And you have other elves that are just fed up trying to talk sense into, <laughs> into us humans and will, will probably attack you on sight. They are a good example for how that particular monster's culture is intimately linked to the, the theme and the, the culture of the, the setting at large. It is also an example of the fact that even the, the monster's particular culture is teeming with conflict interests. You know, maybe you have a common goal, in this case, trying to, to keep humans from, from awakening the darkness, the retaliatory uh, aspects of nature, but you really don't agree on how to go about it. All of this uh, really, I feel like, drives home just that thought that if we go into our games and we just as GMs running the games, just think of monsters as something that boost XP that we are missing out on a lot of great lore building and world building there. You can use monsters as pieces that can be fought. But I think even if you're going to like go down that road, you still want to ask yourself, why is it that these creatures are fighting, not just putting them in the yeah. in the road, but um, are they fighting your PCs because they your PCs have entered a region that they consider to be a, a holy place, a place that, you know, they value highly in religion? Or did the PCs desecrate something that they hold sacred? You know, you can also open it up to having the PCs start talking with these of these monstrous races and the difficulties in that in is there a language bar barrier are there like things that traditionally this is the way that you introduce yourself that if you don't know about the culture the way that these monsters work these people work you're going to be perhaps moving towards that battle or just different kinds of conflict yeah and and, and you risk losing out on a lot of mystery in the, the setting as well. Because there there is something really interesting in in meeting that monster. And first of all, learning that he is looking back at the monster. I mean, the dragon doesn't see itself as a monster, right? Mm. The hero is with his magical sword as the, the true monster, as well as the, the elves tend to see. I mean, humans as monsters, and then learning about learning about these creatures. Not only what what stats they have, which is great if you want to kill them, <laughs> but also how they work, how they uh, interact with each other, and what makes them tick. What is important to them, in other words, in in a role playing context, you will get other ways to deal with them them with a sword. You can negotiate with them, you can trade with them, you can barter and you can try to persuade them. All of those things require that you understand the creature. Uh, so, so it leads to a lot of, of, of fun and interesting role-playing situations as well. Yeah, I think just just what you said there with the fact that the dragon doesn't consider itself as a monster. The term monster is just something I mean, monstrous is something that the the PC races in most games have deemed for these creatures. But any creature that's able to have some sort of a culture, they're not going to be considering themselves as monsters. Monster kind of drives home that they are a an obstacle and as gms running these games building these worlds if we just think about them as obstacles yeah we're missing out a lot of like you said great role-playing opportunities that go beyond just battle for no apparent reason some people really really like to run role-playing games as much as a, a table, tabletop game with some uh, voice acting. And 
So to each his own. I mean, you you play games the, the way you love it, and as this uh, podcast, so you you shine a light on the on the key figure here, the the game master, and mm-hmm. game master can't get uh, the rest of the players to to find joy in something else than just gaining experience and loot. Then by all means, give them what they want. Or, I, I mean, should we try to advocate a, a certain kind of game style? I think not. I think that is um, something that you can kind of take on as a GM to be a challenge and a goal. To so, Yeah, you're right. Sometimes you have players that just want to hack and slash, and that's all they care about or seemingly care about. And so I think the challenge as a GM sometimes is to say, well, how can I maybe try to pique their interest in this monster culture that I've developed while kind of giving them just hints along the way? So I think maybe that's like maybe that's the next the next question that I want us to discuss is like, how do we as GMs present monster cultures to our players when we're running a game for players, whether they are just like ready to dive into these deep cultures or maybe they're not and they just want to go on the journey and they're just going to be seeing monsters as obstacles. How do we present monster cultures to them along that road? My first thought would be up front, because if you don't, they might just murder them. Because so, <laughs> the preconceived notion of what an orc is may just mean that they're going to immediately roll initiative. So I think there needs to do like the exact method. You know, it's definitely open for interpretation, but I think it is important to kind of put that out there of like, oh, well, you'll have to go through the land of the orcs. Uh, don't forget to take X, Y, Z as like homage to them so that you can pass through like we can't mess with what we have here it's a delicate balance and we need these orcs to continue to not try and attack us as we go through yeah i don't know if i have some some great golden bullet in 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 this case one tip maybe is to on the first encounter have the creature do something or act in a way which is totally contradicts the if you you have an orc maybe he or she shouldn't start dancing in front of the players but do something that is i don't know carefully approach and hand over some form of gift or something that you really wouldn't expect an orc to do in our case with the elves most fantasy fans would probably expect when meeting an elf to be treated with some kind of, I mean, not outright uh, outright violence, but in Simbrum, that would most likely be the case. But the first time you come across an elf, you first meet the, the tip of his or her arrow. So have them do something that seems out of character, then just to get the players thinking of the possibility that this is something else than your, your standard Urukai. Yeah, unexpected, I feel like, is is one of the best ways to go about it. Like, you're taking your players through a journey through the hills of a country in your world, and they see and you describe that they see a hill giant. Well, the players are usually going to draw their swords and rush towards it to attack. But what if that hill giant turns to them and like bows? And then yeah. like gives them some like welcome, like welcomes them to their land and says, would you like to come back to my my home? Uh, I have a feast there waiting like that's going to catch the players by surprise. And you don't even in that sense need to like you could still be setting up an encounter. Maybe yeah. the culture of hill giants in your world welcomes food back to their house to feed the, fill them up with food that they don't want before eating them. <laughs> Maybe yeah. that's the like way you build up to a, an encounter that's going to be more interesting than just, all right, roll for initiative, you're fighting a hill giant. And it builds this culture. And then you welcome them into a home of the hill giant. You can describe art that the hill giant has. You can go into depth and describe more, and your players will start to really understand how hill giants work a little bit more than they would have if they just went up and killed it. Maybe an even more effective surprise to, to the players 
if you want them to avoid combat at all costs, would be to have uh, that hill giant jerk back when he he sees the adventurers and look terrified mm. and backing away, displaying some kind of, you know, <laughs> something totally different. That would work very well for an orc as well, I would say. Yes, and then he runs away terrified. Your piece chase him to a nearby farm with his family of hill giants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then you just got this whole setup for this interesting this is not what we were expecting. And he he the hill giant runs home and positions himself, you know, between you and his giant children. Yes. Really afraid that you will hurt them. Yeah. Take what take what you need, leave me alone. Yeah. I also like the idea that we just came up with with like terrifyingly conniving hill giants does not <laughs> sit well with me. I'm just like, yeah, come back. Don't worry. Don't <laughs> see. Don't worry. I have tables and chairs just set up for when I have smaller folk in my home. It's all ready to go. And then they try and murder you. Well, and that's and that's a good point, because hill giants are known for being dumb creatures. But I think when we're talking about monster cultures, you can also say, yeah, but not all hill giants are going to be the same and have the same kind of culture either. You might have hill giants that are farming hill giants that they don't go and hunt people. You might have hill giants that have figured out that they can use the fact that most people think that they are dumb creatures to be more sneaky and invite food back to their house to fatten them up and then while they're sleeping gobble them up you can have different sets of cultures for even the same type of monster this is actually exactly what i was trying so desperately to say at the start <laughs> culture is a construct so if you, if you say the hill giants culture or if you say the the culture of the hill giants living on this particular hill or if you say those living in that cave, no matter how small you go in defining, trying to define a unified culture, you will fail because there will be conflict, there will be controversy, there will be complexity within that limitation that you actually have set up. So, and so, so that is, I think that's maybe one of the most important things if you want to portray the world as living, never, let the players assume that once they have met one orc or one elf or one dragon, they know them all. Yeah, this, the second one you meet can easily be at war with the first one. Yeah, it's it's this idea of looking at a a monster race. At first, you could be looking at it through like a telescope. You're seeing it like as a whole, like this big, like far off kind of thing. And you're starting to get these ideas about it. But then you can switch to the binoculars and you're focusing on like a segment of those that monstrous race. And then eventually, like you said, if you're just breaking it down even further, you can go to the microscope and you can even just look at a single family and how they act. And it can be extremely and it should be if we're trying to build build realistic worlds, it should be different. There should be differing cultures throughout. Yeah. And you will, of course, find conflicts within that single family over all the things you mentioned, over religion, over uh, art styles, over economics, uh, financial questions, over morals, and so on and so forth. All those things are important, and you will have probably, when designing a creature and you will want to give it some, some depth, you will formulate some kind of preferences or do's and don'ts, you know, norms, social norms, you will set some kind of basic that you assume that most individuals of that particular family of monsters share, but then you need to show or demonstrate individuals of that particular breed can act totally differently, as well as humans. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking about a human culture that course yeah we can do that human culture compared to the culture of dragons or, or trolls or whatever it's not like it's simple thing to define i really like the idea too of like how do we learn about these monster cultures how do we like present this to our players 
I like the idea of in introducing an NPC that the players can get to really know well that is part of a monster culture that you want to kind of introduce more, whether they're countercultural, that they go yeah. like the culture is like full of a lot of like evil monsters that do these terrible things and would normally like hurt the PCs. But then you have this this oddball that is countercultural that you can kind of befriend and he can kind of fill you in or she can fill you in on how this culture works or even in the sense of like an NPC that could be an ambassador that you meet to a monster culture. Uh, like Neil, you said like, oh, we're going to the land of the orcs. Who, who's the guy who says, hey, you need to make sure to take A, B and C with you because, yeah. you know, this is the traditional gift. This is something that they're going to like understand. Also, please take this book. It kind of gives the basics of orc language. Make sure to like study it. Make sure to read it like. Who would be a great NPC to say, hey, go do this, or even I'm coming with you, would be an ambassador to the Orc Nation. So the whole idea that we're talking about kind of had my mind reeling. And there's a very inglorious movie that stars Brad Pitt that you can go watch. <laughs> and in that, where you know, they're essentially trying to hide inside of this culture, and the whole thing falls apart. Because instead of holding up three fingers like they should, they hold it up like they would in their own culture and now they've been exposed i mean it can be yeah. something as simple as that that defines the relationship that you have with the monster culture that you're going into and like from that point on you know and you can kind of go out from there but yeah something as simple as holding up the wrong set of fingers could ruin everything that happens for your players boom so the last thing that we want to discuss is we want to kind of discuss some we've already been doing this a little bit, but give some ideas, some inspiration for building cultures for monsters in your homebrew worlds, whatever it is that we can think of with whatever breakdown. If we want to talk about social organization, customs, traditions, religion, language, arts, literature, government, all that kind of things. What are some ideas that we can have together here today that can hopefully inspire our listeners? Uh, Matthias, we'd love to hear about some of the aspects of culture that you have been working on and thinking about as you work on this new bestiary. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think, at least to me, and I, I don't know if this is good advice for anyone else, uh, but... I think, as I said earlier, you should you should start in in the larger landscape, the game setting at large, and try to fit the creature that find a niche or find a way for each creature you are developing to to sort of reflect the larger conflicts, the larger themes of the setting in, in a unique kind of way. So we have this when we started working on this bestiary, we said that each monster has to do two things. It has to provide some kind of new tactical challenge, basically a new kind of combat challenge. New because it's interesting. You, you have to learn about the creatures and how they can be combated. And in the same way, we wanted every creature to, to contribute to the, the lore not as satellites or isolated phenomenons, but we wanted them to say something about the world at large. And this is why we, we try to, actually, there are 27, you can say, main, which are fleshed out on, I would say, four to six pages each. And all of these creatures come with some form of description that is basically written from the perspective of the game world so and, and in various forms it is a, a kind of an objective introduction or, or description which still refers to how this creature is known in the game world what do the the, the scholars and the, the explorers and the, the treasure hunters who encounter them what do they have to say about these creatures that we introduce then there is another aspect, uh, and there are the in-game artifacts. You know, the, the, it can be letters, it can be excerpts of an interview or, or an interrogation with a heretic or different kinds of, 
of text artifacts that are basically we we have found in the game world and we are presenting them to you as a means of describing the creature. And when doing when 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 writing the, the monster codex this way, we continuously force ourselves to not only provide ample descriptions of the creatures. So if I would give one advice, try to look at this creature from the perspective of the predominant culture, most often mm. the human culture of the setting. Mm. And how would they see it? How would they first see it? How would they interact with it when they have learned a bit about it? Are there different kinds of perspectives on this one family of creatures? Uh, are people arguing uh, about or the dragons or whatever or are there are, are the humans pretty unison in their unison in their uh, their way of describing and understanding the creature so uh, I don't know I, I could go on like forever about this <laughs> I think I, I, I think this is good advice yeah and and you can have all you can have truth come out from that you can have rumors yeah. come out from that that kind of lead to their own type of role-playing opportunities that could go awry because of that? Yeah, you, you describe it from, from the standpoint of an actual observer, and that observer can either meet the, the scared hill giant who runs home to, to mommy, or the, the really angry, grumpy hill giant that lives on the next hill, uh, who will come at you with his club as soon as he, he get a whiff of you in the air and they will of course be de described hill giants very differently which also then gives you as a gm and as and as a player in the next step hmm. a more nuanced understanding of both the game world and its creatures i think that another great idea to uh, really be able to create these monster cultures is by taking inspiration from what we know and other uh, cultures around our world that are have throughout history been raised up and kind of giving that a twist with the monsters this idea of like a vault a viking culture but the vikings are not humans the vikings are trolls to me that that seems like a scary monster culture but an interesting monster culture that you could kind of go with uh or taking the a tribal culture and adding it to uh, a knoll group um and having these knolls have these totem poles that mark their territory uh that are beautiful and artistic and uh, have different heads of uh, gnolls and other creatures uh, that they perhaps worship or respect in nature. Having goblins that resemble the the Celtic uh, culture, and you could have a twist on goblins and have them put their chaotic side towards nature and have druid goblins. And how does that uh, create a different culture that is very different than the goblins that we are so used to uh, in games of D&D &D or whatever role-playing game that we're playing in. I think taking real-world cultures and kind of meshing them together with certain monsters can create really interesting mixes. I also love that idea and want the idea of mixing just kind of as another way to potentially make monster cultures and very interesting in your world going off of that would be taking the preconceived notions of let's say non-monstrous races and combining them and that's going back to like matthias what you had originally talked about was so what happened to these two cultures that brought them together and the one that I can't get out of my head is gnomes and trolls because I just see gnomes like tinkering with the regeneration of trolls. Yeah. So you have like all these crazy like hybrid versions, but then the trolls are okay with it because it's made them more powerful. And the gnomes are okay with it because now they're protected by this more powerful set of trolls. And so then you have these two cultures. And so like that first interaction by your players is going to say, who's what are the yeah. trolls? good or are the gnomes bad 
and then yeah, I think presenting it in a way that want that you f- almost force your players to want to ask questions is you know just a great way to have a monster culture exist in your world. Also, the trolls would at least have four arms, all of them. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> I think even just a simple search of real world cultural traditions can just lead to a whole brainstorming session of you can pull things from real world cultural traditions. There are some ones that you could find that are really interesting and twisting them and putting them into monster traditions can lead to some really amazing role playing experiences, such as uh, if you had a if you had an orc a group of orcs that their tradition was that if they had a tradition that if a eagle shows up or a belief that if an eagle shows up uh, at the first sign of the f- full moon, uh, it's considered good luck. Well, what happens if your druid character shows up and has an eagle with him on the night of the full moon? How does that orc group treat that druid? The thing is, uh, the overall statement that, you know, looking at our world and our monthly crew <laughs> of, of <laughs> different cultures throughout history is a, is, is a great source for inspiration when it comes to, to, you know, to the details. How you illustrate culture can be, can be great examples throughout human history. But... The interesting thing is also to use those kind of symbols, cultural artifacts or symbols that we think we know, and then twist them. So uh, to take one one example from, from Symbarum, they are followers of a deity called Prios, a sun god, and they arrive to this new region uh, and start to explore it. And they fi- find sun symbols like everywhere on ruins and old, uh, old stone tablets and whatnot. And they actually even start to store some of the, the old old temple structures that they find in this new region uh, as, t- uh, as they believe that it, them to be the, the, you know, the earliest examples of the worship of their God. Now, of course, it doesn't take long before some scholars start questioning this. And um, as writers, we, we will never tell you what's what in, in the world of, of symbol. But uh, there are those who, who can who claim and the fact that that is not a sun symbol, it is a spider. And once you start realizing that and you put it together with the fact, the legend of the, the, the so-called Spider King who, who like was on, on the brink of, of destruction under his rule some centuries ago, then you find that the people, the people of Ambria, the humans coming there, they are think, believing they are, are worshipping symbols of the sun god are actually worshipping the old Spider King. So you can use, and the, uh, you mentioned uh, Brad Pitt. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, you did. Uh, you have uh, you have the Sun Cross, which is also one of those cultural artifacts or symbols that is open for <laughs> interpretation, to say the least, which can mean a lot of different things throughout history and in different settings. So just bringing that sort of artifact to the wrong place with the wrong crowd can form a reaction that you are not prepared for. Yes. I feel, I feel like we were taken to school and I appreciate that. Like, yeah, it's going to take a while. It's going to take a while. No, no, no. In a good, in a totally good way. A good way. Yeah. The negative is going to be, yeah. We're here to learn. (laughs) I think I'm I'm sadly landing somewhere in between. I'm trying to, it's the, the thing is, it's the topic. This, this is so interesting 
no, like I said, it's perfect. And it's going to take me probably like two or three hours to not think about this anymore, which is going to make, <laughs> which is going to make working tons of fun. But before, before we go though, we want to ask the most important question to you. Where can people go to find more about Symborum, what you're working on and just kind of follow you and all the great stuff that you do? Oh, where do you go? Where do you go? Uh, hopefully to your local gaming store. I know that we, we, there can be some problem with, with the, the stock. We will remedy that as soon as we can. Uh, otherwise, uh, I think you, you should look us up on Google Plus or the subreddit or Symborum or the place where, where we have most discussions is probably on Facebook. Awesome. And we'll have all of those links in our show notes. But again, Matthias, I just want to thank you so much for coming. And I feel like we've got more than enough to go off of that. We might just have to have you back on sometime. I, I, I would love to. Uh, I should also say that I've, I listen to your cost and it's, it's, uh, it's a joy every time. So it's a real honor to be, be with you tonight. Awesome. Oh, thanks. Thanks so much. And with that, let's head to the mailbag of holding. But they've been asking for their mail on a daily basis. It's all they're talking about up there. That right there is the mail. Now let's talk about the mail. Can we talk about the mail, please, Mac? I'm dying to talk about the mail for you all day, okay? So for today's mailbag, I am not alone. Instead, I am here with Mitch. And hey. we're gonna tack we're gonna tackle an email that we got from DM Sam. And they needed a bit of advice because they have a player that has an interesting character choice that they have some questions about. Essentially, their player wants to play as a half-dragon fighter in 5th edition, just like they did in 3rd edition. 3rd edition was a little long in the tooth, pun intended, and that was an option by the end, and it was pretty OP at times. And they were just asking how would we approach it, and if there is any like official ruling on whether or not that could happen. I did some research, and the first thing I found was that Jeremy Crawford himself says, the Dragonborn are a race, whereas Half-Dragon is a template that can be applied to certain creatures. So I would personally say that no, that is not an option for a player to start out as. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's tough because as as the DM, this is something we say on the show all the time, like you're there for your players to have a good time. Sometimes the most appropriate thing is to say no to a player because in doing so, you are watching out for the other players, uh, allowing s- a player to do whatever they want as far as whatever character they want, whatever race they want can lead to an unbalanced game. And I have personally been a player at tables and I used to be a DM where I allowed there a lot of things that I wouldn't allow today. And I've seen players and I've felt it as a player where it was just like, Oh my gosh, that one player with his PC or her PC is just overpowered is doing all the damage and felt a little worthless. And that's something you got to watch out for. You don't want everybody else to suffer because of that. Yeah. And the other thing is, you know, it was brought up that DM Sam had asked if they wanted to be a dragonborn, which I feel is the perfect answer or alternative of here's something yeah. that's sanctioned as a race, but they wanted to be this thing. And so like you had mentioned the approach of saying, well, if you did this and everyone else did that, there would be almost no purpose for the rest of your party members in turn making it not fun for everyone else, which I totally experienced in third edition with someone who was a half dragon. (laughs) Of course, we always uh, would uh, say to strive to do your best to come to a decision with that player and work with them to make a compromise. But yeah, it's hard because that dragonborn seems like a perfect compromise in that and looking for that feel um but yeah be be able to protect the the game for your other players as well do it with all the kindness that you're able to muster so that's all we have for the mailbag and we just want to thank you dm sam for sending in that message 
Thanks again to Matthias for joining us on this episode of the Dungeon Masters Block. We hope that you have enjoyed uh, our discussion on monster cultures. Neil, if our listeners want to get in touch with us, uh, write us an email uh, about uh, a monster culture that they've created in their homebrew world, or just basically anything on Dungeons & Dragons, where can they reach us at? Uh, I live at 160 West... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, send packages too (laughs) yeah you know the interesting thing with that is that I also I do that in my notes too I write jokes and I'm like this is for no one but me if I even read these again (laughs) if you want to get a hold of us and let us know about the monster cultures that you've made in your homebrew world you can always email us at dungeonmasterblock at gmail.com And if you like this episode and maybe some of the others, head on over to iTunes where you can leave us a five-star review and we will read it on air. Follow us on Twitter at DMS underscore block. That's at DMS block. And like our Facebook page. Both of those places are great for updates about this very show. We have a Patreon member shout out of the week. And this week's Patreon member shout out goes to... Wrinkle Rose! Thank you so much, Wrinkle Rose. Wrinkle Rose is a what, Neil? A silver dragon flying through the forums and getting all kinds of sweet, sweet rewards. So thank you again for your support of our network. And as always, the Dungeon Masters Block is a proud member of the Block Party Podcast Network, where you can go check out other shows like the GM Showcase, Geek Wars, We're So Bad at Adventuring, and more. Well, that's all we have for you today on the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we come to talk about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of all their people at the table. I'm Dungeon Master Neil. Good night and good luck. And keep on Dungeon Mastering. Murdering Bruce Wayne's parents. Welcome back to the. D- <laughs> I couldn't do it. <laughs> That's gonna be a weird out of context blooper. <laughs> I'll leave that in there. Please don't. I won't. Oh gosh. Uh, you can leave the part in there. You say I'll leave that in there. <laughs> Please don't. Uh- <laughs>